Um, John 18. I am going to read our text for us. I will pray. I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then we will go ahead and get to work. John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside and said to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not have been delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. In Job chapter 25, verse 4, Job asks a interesting and really timeless question. In fact, it's probably the most important question anybody could ask. Job asks this, how can man be made right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? That's the most important question we could ask. How can man be made right before God? That's the most important question we can ask because that's the greatest need we have, being made right before God. There is no greater need than a pure and right standing before God. How, then, are we made right before God? Many have tried to answer that question. Buddhism tries to answer that question by saying, well, we need to be made right before God or the gods by emptying ourselves. We empty ourselves, and eventually we get into a state of nirvana. We empty out all the impurities and eventually we become one with God or God's. Islam answers that question, tries to, by saying, well, we have to do more good works than we do bad works. And at the end of our lives, Allah will take our good works and our bad works and weigh them on a scale. And if the good works hopefully outweigh the bad works, then we'll be made right before Allah. That's how Islam tries to answer the question. Vague spirituality, modern, Western, American spirituality answers that question by saying, well, just be good. Just be a good person. Just have good values, don't hurt anybody, recycle, buy a dog, be a good person. 
be a good person and everything will be okay. As long as you don't do things that I feel are really bad, then you'll be right before God. Well, the Bible and Christianity says something completely different. How can a man be made right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? And this is really the main thing I want us to consider this morning. And this is the answer the Bible gives us. Jesus, the innocent lamb, takes the place of guilty criminals. Jesus, the innocent lamb, takes the place of guilty criminals. Jesus is innocent. We are guilty. Jesus takes our place and bears our guilt. That's how we're made right before God. That's the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, we're not just talking about a big religious term that's kind of vague and empty and means nothing. Jesus takes the place. The innocent lamb takes the place of guilty criminals. You'll notice on your bulletin, they're, the insert to the bulletin, they're bigger and they have more writing on them. On the inside cover on the left, for your future reference, the main idea is listed in there so we can remember it. That's, that's really the main thing I want us to kind of hook today from this. That's how man is made right before God. The innocent lamb takes the place of guilty criminals. We're going to see that in this text this morning. Jesus has been arrested. He has spent the last night of his life prior to crucifixion with his disciples, teaching them, training them, preparing them for his departure. He has told them they, that he is leaving. And Judas, one of his disciples who was never a true disciple. He never actually loved Jesus. He always was out for his own gain. He went to betray Jesus just as the Bible prophesied for the exact amount that the Bible prophesied, 30 pieces of silver. He went and betrayed Jesus to the religious leaders who hated him and wanted him dead. Jesus is in control of all of this. He's not a helpless victim. This is all part of God's plan. He goes to where Judas would expect him to be and he is arrested He's then brought on trial before religious leaders. We saw that last week. He goes through three religious trials, one before Annas, one before Caiaphas, who's the official high priest that year, and then another one before Caiaphas a few hours later. And now at this point, it's early in the morning, and the Jews have brought him to a man named Pontius Pilate. He's a Roman governor. He rules that area, Jerusalem, and Judea, and the Romans had taken away the death penalty from the Jews. The Jews could not execute people, and so they would have to get that passed by the Roman ruler, and that's what they've come to do. They're here to see Pilate, to get him, to try to pressure him, to push him and convince him to execute Jesus. That's where we find ourselves this morning as we begin John 18, starting in verse 28. We're going to start with our first point, the accusation. This is a courtroom scene. Pilate is the judge. Jesus is the defendant with no defense attorney. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, are the prosecution. We start with the accusation. Verse 28, again, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, that's the high priest, to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning, but they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but that they could eat the Passover. want to explain that to us. The Jews believed that if they entered a Gentile's home, that they would become defiled. 
that they could not enter a Gentile's home lest they become defiled. And if that was in the middle of, of a week where there was a religious holy feast happening, they couldn't partake in the feast because they'd be defiled. This is not in the Bible. There's no mosaic legislation or law for this. This was an invented law. The rabbis over years would, would create new laws to, to, to cause further separation between them and the Gentiles. This is not a biblical law. This is an additional ordinance and yet they are following it meticulously. It's Passover week. They wanted to avoid defilement that they could fully observe this holy religious festival. I want to point this out for us. They are zealous to scrupulously obey the letter of the law while simultaneously exerting all of their energy to murder God. They refuse to break this invented law so that they won't be defiled for Passover, all while they are demanding and screaming for the blood of the innocent and true Passover lamb. They are so intent on being above reproach in regards to the law while they're delivering Jesus over to be killed. This is complete, total hypocrisy at its height and apex. There is no more hypocritical example we could point to. They think that they are righteous. They think that their righteousness comes from keeping rules. And so we can't go in the governor's house because then we'll be defiled. We need to observe the Passover. We need to do this trial outside. They think that their righteousness comes from them keeping rules and they're righteous in their own eyes but not in God's eyes. They're righteous in their own eyes, in their own estimation, in their own judgment, of course, but they're not in God's eyes. This is the type of thing that Jesus has been confronting his whole ministry Matthew 23, 23, Jesus had this scathing indictment for the same people. Matthew 23, Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You tithe down to the, the, the very smallest spices, and yet you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You ought to have done these without neglecting the others, you do the things that are external, that are measurable, that are praiseable, that people can look at and say, look how holy you are, look how righteous you are, look at how religious you are, look at how much you love God. All the things that are external and yet the things that are actually weighty, that are actually significant, that are less measurable, that are in your heart, you've completely neglected. That's the sort of thing that Jesus has been calling them out for this whole time. They're acting here like Jesus is some sort of tyrannical wannabe king who's trying to throw a coup in the Roman Empire. And really, it's just out of envy. Mark tells us that. Matthew tells us that. It's just out of envy. It's out of envy that they want Jesus dead. So this is the Pharisees. It's not just the Pharisees, though. This is what happens to people, to us, when we make the Bible mean what we want it to mean. This is what happens when we take Scripture, and instead of actually 
learning, reading, believing scripture, we take it and we use it for our own means. This is what happens when we put ourselves over scripture. Yes, I use the Bible, I know the Bible, I love the Bible, and I use it for my own purposes as opposed to being under scripture. We're under its authority. We're under its teaching. We're under its thought. We actually submit to it. We don't just throw it out when we feel like we disagree with it or when it kind of clashes with our agenda. But this is what happens to everybody, not just the Pharisees. It's easy for us to point at them and say, yeah, that's pretty bad. They're pretty bad. They're pretty foolish. This is what happens to everybody when we put ourselves over Scripture, when we take what we want and ignore the rest. We like to think we're being biblical and we're right in our own eyes, but we are doing no more than what they are doing, using Scripture for their own purposes, not how God intended. This is much of preaching today, just so you know. Much, if not most, preaching in America does this exact thing. Instead of preaching, we have... Preachers have Bibles that they're looking at and reading from, but instead of actually preaching the Bible, we're just preaching something from the Bible, but it's really just our ideas, and we're using the Bible to support our opinions and support our ideas and support our agenda. That's, that's much, if not most, preaching. It's not actually biblical. It's not actually faithful. It's not actually good or godly or God-glorifying. Can God still work? Yes, God can work. God's very gracious, but that's not okay. We can't use Scripture for whatever we want. We can't, like they're doing, say, I'm I'm not going to go into the governor's headquarters because I don't want to be defiled. Oh, by the way, murder Jesus. Have him executed. It misses the whole point. That's an obvious example, but in varying, to varying degrees and in various ways, that's what we do with Scripture when we put ourselves above Scripture and not under Scripture. So this is the Pharisees. This is how they're behaving. This is how they treat Scripture. This is what they're doing to Jesus. We want him gone for our own purposes. Well, they bring him to Pilate, and Pilate asks the first question that you should ask. Verse 29, Pilate went outside and said to them, "'What accusation do you bring against this man?' They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. What accusation do you bring? That's the first question you would want to ask in a trial situation. What did the person do? What are you being accused of? What are you saying he's guilty of? And they answer, well, he's guilty of something. If we bring him to you, that means he's guilty. Why are you questioning us? That's how they respond. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have brought him over to you. Why are you questioning us on this? Here's the issue. Pilate asks for an accusation, and they don't have one. They don't have an accusation. And they can't invent an accusation where they say, well, Jesus broke a Jewish law or a Jewish custom or a Jewish ordinance. Pilate doesn't care about that. They need to concoct something that would be a threat against Rome, that would be a threat against Rome's interests. That's what Pilate cares about. He doesn't care about Jewish law. If they just say, well, we think he's been a blasphemer, Pilate says, okay, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. But if there's a threat against Rome, then Pilate has to get involved. 
They don't have an accusation. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. I, this doesn't have anything to do with me. And the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That's not biblical law. The Old Testament, uh, under Israel's theocracy um, and monarchy, there, there, there are certainly laws that institute the death penalty. They're talking about Roman law. All of a sudden, they want to be good Roman citizens. It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. You've told us that. You've taken away our ability to do that. They have no accusation, but they keep pressing and pressing and pressing. And Pilate, we'll get into this more in our next section, but Pilate's already in a bit of hot water with them and with his boss, Tiberius Caesar. Pilate has kind of, over the years that he's been governor, disrespected them and, and been a little bit too heavy-handed with them in some ways, and they've complained and complained and complained, and multiple times now it's gotten up to Caesar, and it's causing problems for Pilate. He's on thin ice already. We will talk about that more next week, but he has to, he can't just shut them out. He has to play the political game. He has to find a different way around this than just saying, get out of my presence. That's what he should have done. He's guiltless. That should have been the end of the conversation, but it wasn't. Luke 23.2 tells us the accusation that they trumped up. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. He wants to overthrow Caesar. This is a threat against Rome. That's the charge that they bring against him. All fake, all lies. None of it's true. It's all a ploy to get him killed, period. They don't care about Caesar. They don't care about Jesus. They don't care about God. They don't care about righteousness. They don't want to lose their power, period. They don't want to have a power shift. And it doesn't have anything to do... It's, it's all invented anyways. Jesus never told anybody to not pay tribute to Caesar. In fact, Jesus paid his taxes, and he told his disciples to pay his taxes. He said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. That's money. He's not preventing anybody from paying tribute to Caesar. He's not trying to overthrow the emperor. So all of this is fake. It's all deceitful, full of lies. John 11 tells us the real reason that they wanted him out. Didn't have anything to do with any of the things that they mentioned. John eleven forty five through 48. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. Jesus had just come in John 11 and he's raised Lazarus from the dead. Many believed and some went and told the Pharisees. They tattled on Jesus. They want to get him in trouble and gain some favor with the Pharisees. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, listen, listen. They said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. If we can't keep this under control, everyone will start following him instead of us and the Romans will take away our power and Jesus will have power. We can't let that happen. That's the issue. That's the issue. They don't care about God or Jesus or Rome or Caesar. They care about power, position, control, honor. That's what they care about. This is no accusation. This is just an unjust, corrupt trial. But also, verse 32, we would need to point out, Jesus was no victim. Jesus was no victim. He's no helpless martyr. Verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what, uh, by what kind of death he was going to die. 
That'd be crucifixion. If he's killed by the Jews in some angry mob, that would be by stoning, not crucifixion. But Jesus knew how he was going to die. Jesus is in control over this whole thing. In John 12, he prophesied this. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, that's crucifixion, literally lifted up on a cross. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. John 18, 32, this was spoken to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is in control of this whole thing. He has to be killed by the Romans. Crucifixion is their, their method of execution. That's how Jesus said he was going to die. That's how he's going to die. He's in control over the whole thing. He's not a helpless victim. This is all part of God's plan. It's all part of redemption. It's all part of what's been planned in eternity past and what's been prophesied over the ages. It's all part of the plan. He knows what he's doing. He's come as the innocent lamb, remember, the innocent lamb, to take the place of guilty criminals, to take the place of you and I. Just briefly, for us to consider as we see Jesus on trial being falsely accused in a moment, we'll see how he responds. Seeing Jesus in a situation that is unfair to say the least, criminal, really, and deceitful, all of this is corrupt, and seeing Jesus in this situation, how he responds to false accusation, friends, us looking at that informs and enables us to respond in like manner. Have you ever been accused of something that you didn't do? Have you ever been treated unfairly? Have you ever been treated poorly? Have people said things to you or done things to you or whatever that you didn't deserve that really was cruel, mean. Look how Jesus responds. He's going to respond in truth, but he's going to respond in gentleness and in humility. Gentleness and humility. He doesn't scream for justice. He doesn't make a big deal out of it. He doesn't let everybody know, look how unfair this is. Why won't somebody do something? He responds in truth, but in gentleness and humility. As we go through life, we all know that we will be accused of stuff that we did not do. We will be treated unfairly and treated poorly. Remember Jesus in John 18? 1 Peter 2, 19 through 23 says this. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, somebody endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten, if you endure? Meaning, if you do bad stuff, wrong things, and then you face the consequences, well, that just, that just makes sense. But when you have God in mind and you endure suffering and sorrow and it's unjust suffering, if you do that, Peter says, but when you do good and suffer for it, if you endure it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, Christian, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, 
Neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled. He did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So that's our calling. We suffer unjustly. And Peter says, well, that's what we've been called to. How do we know that? Because that's what Jesus went through. And we're called to live like him. When he suffers unjustly, he responds gently and humbly. And he endures it in truth, but gently and humbly. Like wise, we ought to respond in the same way. So Jesus is before Pilate, false accusation, all lies, but Pilate has to give an ear. He has to play the political game. And so now the cross-examination begins. That's point two, the cross-examination. Verse 33, Pilate entered his headquarters. He calls Jesus to himself and he says, are you the king of the Jews? That's the accusation. You're trying to overthrow Caesar. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate doesn't want to deal with this. He hates the religious leaders. He really doesn't like them. We know that from all the gospel accounts, but additionally, historically, he hates them. He doesn't want to do their bidding, but he has to play the political game. So he says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it about me? Is this a real question, Pilate? Is this, are you actually interested or are you just, is this just recitation? Are you just regurgitating what you've heard? Or are you actually interested? Verse 35, Pilate says, Am I a Jew? Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? I am not interested in Jewish affairs. I don't care if you think you're a king. I don't, I don't care. I don't care what you think. If you're not a threat to Rome, this is not my area. I do not want to deal with this. I am not a Jew. I'm not interested in Jewish disputes. Just tell me what you've done. He, Pilate here needs to ascertain if Jesus is an actual threat. That's why he's cross-examining him. Is this man an actual threat or not? Other than that, I don't care. Of course, Jesus is not trying to set up an earthly kingdom. He's not trying to overthrow Caesar. He's said repeatedly that he's actually trying to do the, he's doing the opposite. He's not setting up an earthly kingdom. He's been very explicit about that. All of these things are lies. But Pilate's not actually interested. Jesus, he's not putting himself in a position for Jesus to draw him out more, to reveal more to him. He's not really interested in that, but Jesus will explain the true nature of his kingdom. Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not have been delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus explains the nature of his kingdom, and this is what he says, my kingdom is not physical, but spiritual. I've not come to set up a physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. My kingdom is not of earth, it's not headquartered here, and it's not from earth. It didn't originate here. My kingdom's not physical. My kingdom is spiritual. As an obvious pointer to that, let us consider the fact that Jesus never called any of his followers to fight. He never called any of his followers to gather together 
and go to battle. One tried to. One of them did. Peter, in the garden, took his sword off, chopped off a guy's ear, and Jesus said, stop, stop, don't do that. It's literally the opposite. Jesus could have, at many times in his ministry, gathered a large fighting militia. Literally in John 6, Jesus has to flee because this massive crowd wants to make him king. John 6, 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. Jesus is not out to set up a political kingdom. His kingdom's not physical, but spiritual. Church, listen to me. He came, Jesus came to bring us from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of death to the kingdom of light and the kingdom of life. The kingdom of darkness and death to light and life. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, literally moved us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's a spiritual kingdom. Jesus came to reveal God. John 1.14, the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Jesus came to reveal the truth about God, the, acts, the true access to God, how to know God. John 8, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life and nobody comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus is saying here in John 18. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who hears, is, who is of the truth listens to my voice. Friends, Jesus comes as the answer to and the provision for our greatest need. Job 25, how can a man be made right in the eyes of God? How can he who is born of woman be made pure? Jesus comes as the provision for that need. He comes to answer that question. He himself is the answer to that question. Jesus is the answer to that question. Our greatest need, your greatest need, my greatest need, everybody who's ever lived, our greatest need is not physical, but spiritual. Our greatest need is not psychological, it's theological. Our flesh tells us the opposite, doesn't it? We have many needs in life. We have so many needs. We have physical needs. We have relational needs. We have all kinds of needs. And even for us who know those aren't our greatest needs, we have a tendency to spend basically all of our time and energy on needs that aren't the greatest, don't we? I mean, I know we all have needs. My kids have needs. We get up in the morning and they're like, I need breakfast. They have a need. They really need breakfast. And there's no way I'm going to get out of feeding them breakfast. They just sit and just, they go and go and go. They have so much energy. It's amazing. They're just, they're like the Energizer Bunny. And then you feed them and it's like, see in 10 minutes, they just, they have a need. I get that. We have needs. They're legitimate. But none of those things are our greatest need. And yet we spend most of our time, if not all of our time, 
on lesser needs and five minutes on the greatest need. If you look to the world to answer that question, the world will tell you the exact opposite. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it seems to be fairly widely accepted by psychologists, Maslow's hierarchy of needs goes from physical needs, physiological needs, relational needs, psychological needs, and the greatest need, guess what it is? Self-actualization, self-fulfillment. That's the world's pyramid of needs culminating in do what feels good. Dig into your full potential. You need to actualize everything that's inside of you and be satisfied with who you are. That's your greatest need. Might I just submit that's a satanic lie? It's the exact opposite. See, the world, our flesh, Satan, the enemy, everybody and everything, everyone against God tries to take our greatest need, which is being made right before God through Christ, and twist it to actually your greatest need is about you. It's not about God, it's about you. Forget God, it's about what you want, what you need, how you feel, getting your needs met. That's your greatest need. You deserve it after all. You've spent so much time, hard work, you, you've sacrificed so much, it's about you. That's your greatest need. No. That's not our greatest need. That's not our greatest need. It's not your greatest need. It's not my greatest need. It's not anybody's greatest need. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is demonic. Our greatest need is God. Our greatest need is being right before God. Being right in God's eyes and being right with him. Not just abstractly, but with him relationally, with God. That's our greatest need. And for us who know and love Jesus, once we're saved, our greatest need then is constantly, continually clinging to God. Knowing Him more deeply. Loving Him more fully. That's our greatest need. More of God. That's where true life, true joy, and true fulfillment, true actualization is actually had. See, the point is not that we shouldn't actually have fulfillment. The point is that it's not found in us. It's found in God. It's not found in us. It's found in someone outside of us. It's found in God. It's not mainly about us. It's mainly about God. That's our greatest need. That's the need that Jesus comes to answer. That's Jesus' kingdom. That's what he's come to do. Verse 38 Pilate says to him, what is truth? He's thought about this before. He's an ancient postmodern. What is truth? Talking about truth, I don't even know what that is. Well, he doesn't really care to learn because he doesn't stick around for the answer. Rest of verse 38, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. There's the verdict. I find no guilt in him. But they keep pressing and pressing and pressing. That's point three, the verdict. The verdict. Pilate's verdict is no guilt. I find no guilt in this man. Pilate's not buying what Jesus is saying. He's not going to become a Christian. He's not buying it, but he has some sense of justice. He's no dummy. I mean, he got to this position by doing something right. 
He has some sense of justice. He might be a brutal man, but he has a sense of justice. He looks at Jesus, probably already swollen and battered and beaten. He's hearing what Jesus is saying. He seems a little bit interested, but he doesn't really care. But ultimately, there's no, I find no guilt in him. There's no threat here. He's not going to overthrow Caesar. Mark and Matthew tell us that Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the Jews had delivered him up. He knows what they're doing. He knows. He gets it. He's not a dumb man. I find no guilt in him. That's Pilate's verdict. Verse 39, he tries to satisfy the crowd. He tries to save some face. Verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release to you one man for Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Matthew 27 you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Matthew 27, 15 through 23. I'm just going to read it for us. It gives us some more, fills in some color on this moment in history. Matthew 27, 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious criminal called Barabbas. When they had gathered, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas? Or Jesus, who is called Christ. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. His wife, Claudia, has a dream about Jesus and sends word to Pilate, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd. They're just rabble rousers. They're just, they're getting the crowd riled up. They persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? He expected them to say Jesus. And they said Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? They said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more like ravenous wolves, crucify him. Let him be crucified. So that's what's happening here. Pilate tries to offer Barabbas, they, or Jesus rather, uh, he's thinking, well, Barabbas is a murderer, he's an insurrectionist, he's a robber. Of course, they're not that envious, but they are. They are. Barabbas is a robber, as I said, an insurrectionist and a murderer, the other gospels tell us, but their hatred for Jesus eclipses all of that. They, they would have done anything. So listen, Barabbas, a guilty sinner, will be set free. No more punishment for Barabbas. And Jesus, the innocent lamb of God, will literally take his place and receive his punishment. I want to point this out for us as we wrap up. Barabbas, his name, it means son of a father, son of a father. Jesus is the son of the father. Barabbas, like us, is a son of Adam. Jesus is the son of God. Barabbas was set free. The sons of Adam are set free, no more wrath. Jesus 
is murdered as the innocent lamb in the place of the sons of Adam, absorbing all wrath. Friends, this is no accident. This is the book, this is the only book that God wrote. This is no accident. This is the book that God wrote, and it all points to this. It all points to the gospel of grace. As we said at the beginning, that the innocent lamb takes the place of guilty criminals. Criminals like you and me who are guilty before God. The innocent lamb takes our place just as he took Barabbas' place and makes us right with God. Self-actualization is not our greatest need. This is our greatest need. Jesus physically took the place of Barabbas long ago, but spiritually, he takes the place of everyone for all time who looks to him in repentance and faith. That's our greatest need. Jesus took his place a long time ago, and that place-taking, that place-taking is still at work today. It's still at work today. If you're not a Christian, the answer to your greatest need is right here. His name is Jesus. And friend, if you're a Christian, you know Jesus and love Jesus, you recognize that he is your greatest need. Recognize this, his, he's your greatest need and my greatest need, not just for saving, but for living. He's our greatest need for living. So let me exhort you as we finish, may we act like it. May we act like Jesus, clinging to him, knowing him, loving him, seeking him. May we actually act and live in a way that reflects he's my greatest need. Amen? Jesus, we thank you that you are the true and innocent lamb. We thank you, Lord, that you have answered fully, once for all. You've answered and provided our greatest need. You yourself are the answer and provision for our greatest need. You, the innocent lamb, took the place of guilty criminals. You took Barabbas's place and you took my place and you took the place of all the members of Union Church and all the members of your church globally. You took our place. And yes, you went to the cross as a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, but you conquered the cross in joy and gladness and victory and triumph. And Jesus, we now stand in light of your triumph. We live in light of your triumph because you experienced the grief. Jesus, we worship you for that. We ask right now that you'd help us to respond in worship, in adoration, in praise, because you're worthy of all of it. Amen. The communion table is uh, set, and as we do each week, this is uh, one of the ways that we